All right. Well, I'll tell you, we went yesterday to uh, Six Flags. So we hadn't been to Six Flags in a while since we got the foster baby. I don't think we went all, did we go all summer? I don't know if we, we I don't know if we got a chance. Maybe we took her one summer. I don't remember. Did we take her one time this summer? On the way to vacation, yeah. So we went one time to Six Flags. We love going to Six Flags because we love roller coasters. And I was really pleased yesterday on all the roller coasters. I didn't get uh, motion sickness or anything. I was able to hang in there. I know y'all are proud of me. But uh, we had a great time, and it was really cold. And so about when it got, started getting a little bit dark, it started getting cold again. It got really cold last night. So we hit the, got back in the uh, Suburban. We were talking with the kids about... Uh, a particular song that we remembered from the 90s. And so we were singing, uh, do y'all remember that song called Seize the Day? It was by Carolyn Arends. It was popular in the 90s. It was like, seize the day, pray for strength for God's hand. Does anybody remember that song? Nothing can, Judy Hammond. Thank you, Judy. She's a true student of contemporary Christian music from the 90s. But uh, we, we were singing that song and we were telling the kids, you know, the idea of the song, seize the day, seize the day. And I was thinking as I was driving and we were listening to the song, thinking, you know, that's weird because that song, it, it almost goes exactly against what I'm preaching. It's like the idea, I'm going to preach today, we're going to begin first, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10, and as you look at that, it's, it's a lot about not thinking about this day, but thinking about the day to come. It's not thinking, and, and yet, I was, I, as I was pondering that, I thought, you know, it's interesting, is that song biblical? And then I thought that we do read in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16, what does Paul say? Make the most of the days, because the time is evil. Isn't that interesting that the Bible tells us simultaneously to seize the day, but also to remember this is not the day that matters the most? Uh, when we were in, uh, studying Renaissance literature and thinking about the difference between the medieval period and the, the Renaissance, uh, the, I remember our professor, Dr. Hopp, would always say the medieval phrase in Latin that they would tell one another over and over was memento more, memento more, remember death. That was kind of the theme of the, of the Middle Ages. And you wanted to remember your death because your life was so bad, you're like, it is definitely going to get better once I'm dead. But then as, as technology improved and people started living longer and things, you know, we moved out of those middle age, dark ages, and life began to get better during the Renaissance as they began to have beautiful artwork and literature and all these different things. And they did have, it's not like that disappeared completely during the middle ages, but whenever reason and, and the age of reason and all these things came in, the, the motto became uh, carpe diem became Seize the Day. And you, we, Adelaide was talking about how she'd seen the movie Dead Poets Society, and she really liked that. And I always think of that, car, are, we, are we to carpe diem or are we to memento more? Do we seize the day or do we remember death? And it is interesting that we can find places in the Bible where we're taught, hey, this day matters. Uh, make the most of it. This is the only day you're guaranteed, isn't it? You can't do anything about tomorrow, uh, yesterday, and you're not guaranteed tomorrow. So today is an important day. At the same time, though, whenever we live in a world, which we do, we live in a world that tells you that this is the only life that matters. Now, the only way you can keep memento more and carpe diem in balance is for you to remember 
that this life is really insignificant compared to the eternal life to come. This life is described in Scripture as a vapor, like a a piece of grass or flower that's here one day and it's gone the next. So we must, to keep these things in balance, we must remember that things are not what they seem. Although this world and the patterns of this world and the spirit of the age are going to tell you Live for today because it's all that matters. That's not what it seems. That's not true. Have you ever been laboring under an assumption or an impression and you realize that that impression was completely wrong? You ever had a situation where what you thought mattered turned out to be meaningless and what you thought was meaningless turned out to really matter. I wonder how many people listening to Bob's testimony and thinking about all the other testimonies that we've had, how many times have people said, my parents brought me to church. There was someone at my church. And do we think of church as being this all-important thing that happens every week? Probably not the way we should. Do we really gather uh, or in our mind understand the magnitude of what it means to gather with God's people? and to study His Word and to worship together, to hear His Word preached. When we hear all these testimonies and they say, I was at church, and there was a person at my church, and the church taught me this, and the church did this, you know, we might get up in the morning and say, well, it doesn't really matter if we go or not. And yet, one day, what if this is what matters the most? What if what we did here is much more significant than we thought? Well, there's all sorts of things like that that happen. Can you imagine being a Jew in the first century? And you're hearing all these stories about this man named Jesus. And maybe you even saw Jesus or you heard people who went and heard Jesus speak. And now, you know, you heard that he died and there's people talking about this Jesus has risen from the dead. And now there are people going around and they say they're following Jesus And they say that even though he was crucified, he was laid in the tomb, he walked out of the tomb and they saw him. And these people are so fanatic about following Jesus that they gave up their heritage, they gave up their relationships with their families, they gave up their respectability. In many cases, they gave up their occupations. And for the normal, ordinary Jew, maybe it seems like these people are living in la-la land. They're living in some dream world where they all gather together at Solomon's porch in the temple and they all say, we're just waiting on Jesus to come back. And they walk by these people in the course of their everyday business. There's those crazy people that are are saying that they follow Jesus. And then consider just a matter of decades later in 70 AD, you said, those are crazy people. I'm going here to the temple. And I'm going to meet with the priest. And I'm going to make my sacrifice. And I'm going to do what those rulers and leaders tell me to do. And then just a a matter of decades later, Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. And then in 135 AD, after the temple had been destroyed in 70, the Romans come in and they completely scatter the Jews all over the empire. And not only do they take the people away, but they rename the region. They call it Palestine. They go ahead and name Jerusalem and Israel after their greatest enemy, the Philistines. And everything that that Jew in the first century thought mattered the most 
was gone. And it turned out that those crazy Christians, who everybody thought were wrong, were able to see past the religion of Judaism, and they were able to see the Messiah that it pointed to. They turned out to be the wise ones. They were the ones that could see, as Chris taught us last week, they could see the unseen. They could see the eternal, not just the temporal. And eventually even the Roman Empire, its official religion became Christianity. There's a radio personality that has a catchphrase. He puts it on t-shirts and mugs and it says this, facts don't care about your feelings. Facts don't care about your feelings. And what he's saying there is there may be things in your heart that you wish were true. But there are certainties and realities and facts of the matter. And the facts of the matter are the facts of the matter. And you might feel like you don't want the facts to be true. You might be sitting here today and there are certain things you wish weren't true. Your heart tells you, oh, I wish this wasn't the way it is. But that is the way it is. And in our passage today, in God's Word, we are going to see and be taught that we have to adjust our focus based upon the facts. And the hard part is that these facts are not apparent to us. The only way we learn that these are the facts is through God's Word and what God has done through Christ. What are the facts? The facts are you have to see the unseen. What are the facts? The resurrection of the dead. What are the facts? That Christians will have a new glorified body. What are the facts? That if you're a Christian here today, even though I can't see the Holy Spirit of God, for every Christian in this room, the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit of God is dwelling within you. So those are facts, and those are facts that we don't really have uh, a hard time, well, actually we have a difficult time believing them, but it's not the fact that we ignore. We can talk about that all day, right? What's the fact that we don't like to talk about? One day, your heart's going to stop beating. One day, you are going to die. Unless Jesus comes back, and we're changed in that way, in the twinkling of an eye, Unless that happens, all of us will go the way of all humanity. Every single one of us in this room will die. The fact is, if the Lord tarries in a hundred years, all of us sitting in here will be dead. Somehow we willfully ignore that fact. And then there's another fact that comes right behind that one. Not only is everyone in this room going to die, there's another fact, everyone in this room will be judged. We will all face some sort of judgment. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, let me challenge you with some questions. Do you believe that all there is is what you can see? Do you believe that anything you see is going to last forever? Because right now, everything you see is not going to last forever. The only thing that in this room right now that's going to last forever is God's Word. All the rest of us are going to be in a new heaven and a new earth. We're going to have new bodies. We're going to fade like grass and flowers. The only thing that's going to last is what we study right here. Do you believe, if you reject all of that, do you really believe that ultimately everything is going to burn up or freeze 
be destroyed, explode, something like that? Do you believe that something happens when your physical life ends? Think about that. That could really separate us here into two groups in this room, couldn't it? The kind of people who say, when you die, that's it. Or, when you die, that's not it. And it's interesting that we read in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, I was preaching a funeral, I read that verse at the funeral as part of the Scripture reading out of the Old Testament. And it strikes me every time I read it that God has put eternity in the hearts of men. Somehow, we are able to think about life going on after we die. We're able to contemplate being at our own funeral. How are, we, how are we able to do these things? Because God's put that in our heart to know that the end is not the end. So what is your perspective on death? For those of us in this room that are Christians, we have a new perspective on death. Christian, do you have a new perspective on death? Remember, Paul says in chapter 4, as we're moving into 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, we don't lose heart even though our outer man is wasting away. Our outer man is dying. But our inner man is being renewed. Christians believe there's something on the inside, something we can't see, that eternal part of us that is being made new and that will last forever. It's not dying. It's enjoying eternal life. So let's look at chapter 5 and see what the Bible says about certain things that are unseen that will allow us to keep what matters the most at the center of our lives. Let's look at verses 1 through 4 as we begin. Paul says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, not that this tent would be taken off, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. I want to look at four certainties today. Four certainties that help us center on what matters. Four certainties that help us center on what matters. Certainty number one. So I'm going to give you, these are what the Bible tells us you can take to the bank, all right? The bodies we now inhabit will die, unless Jesus comes back, we'll qualify that. But the good news is that there is a better body to come. These bodies will die, but there is a better body to come. A body that has physical properties like what we have now, but also has spiritual qualities that we do not have now. Think of the greatest athletes, the most beautiful models. Every single one of those strong athletes or beautiful models, all the best tents, that's talking about this physical body, all the best tents wear out, don't they? When they celebrate at the big college football games and they're having the game and they say, and now we want to bring out the 1957 Sugar Bowl uh, championship team, and they bring those guys out, and they're all walking with canes, or they've got wheelchairs. These were the Adonises who were out there running on the football field, and they bring them out, and they're, they're old men, and they're limping. 
They can't run anymore. They can't throw anymore. They can't tackle or kick. But Paul says, even if that old tent is destroyed, we have a better body that we'll transition into. One that God has prepared in heaven. And in verses 2 through 4, Paul talks about how we groan and we suffer in this body. Not so we could get out of this body. It would be terrible to not have a body. We don't groan to be free from the body and be naked as a soul, but we want to have a better body, an eternal body to swallow up this mortal body. And that's the promise, that's the certainty that we have in verses 1 through 4. Something better is coming for the one who believes. Certainty number two, God will keep His promise to give you a new body. He guarantees us that He is going to make all things new for us by giving us the Spirit. The Spirit is like earnest money. The Spirit in us is living proof that the rest of the promises are on the way. So Paul says of these certainties in verse 6. Well, look at verse 5. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are, what does your Bible say there? We are what? Is everybody listening? (laughs) So we are always of good courage. You could skip over that word always, couldn't you? But I think you should underline it. I underlined it in my text. We are always of good courage. We know that while, how can we always be of good courage? We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Remember, we're looking at the things that are unseen with the eyes of our heart. The eyes of faith. We're walking by faith, not by sight, so we can be encouraged. Paul has talked about the awful circumstances in which he finds himself. Paul's talking about how every time I go into a church, they wind up rejecting me. He's writing a letter to people that have been tremendously mean to him. And he says, but I'm always of good courage. Because I know that while I'm here at home in this body, I'm away from the Lord. This is not really my home. Yes, He emphasizes, if you'll look at verse 8, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's the Christian's new perspective on death. Perhaps that could be one of the central verses of this passage, that we would rather be away. The, The closer we get to the Lord in our walk with Christ, we begin to develop this idea that we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. How many times have I talked with older saints and basically everyone they love is in heaven. All the people that uh, that have gone away, their husbands, sometimes their children, and they feel like they've got more on the other side of eternity than they even have here. But isn't that really the reality for all of us? There's much more waiting over there than there is here. So we don't put our eggs all in this basket. And if we're putting all of our eggs in this basket on this side of eternity, in this world, in this life, it's hard for us to say, I'd rather be away from this body and home with the Lord. Think of the hymn, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. This world is not my home. I'm in exile. I'm traveling through. I'm a pilgrim in this wearisome land, and I'm going to a yonder city that's my home. I'd rather be there than here. We've all been on trips. We were, we were on the trip yesterday to go to Six Flags. 
And, you know, you're, you're, you stop in a place and you, you get out and you go to the bathroom and you're just thinking, how much longer? How, what do we, how many more miles do we have to go before we'll be home? And then what a relief it is, right? To put that car in the driveway and to open that door. Ah, we're home. Well, where is your home? Where do, where do you feel like that way? We should be longing for that in the world to come. Certainty number three. At home with the Lord is better than anything away from Him for a believer. Now, if you're not a believer, this is as good as it gets. This is as close to heaven as you'll ever be. Because where you're headed and your ultimate destination is a place of torment eternally where you're separated from God and terrified of Him forever. So this is as good, close to heaven for one who doesn't believe. But for us that put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ... At home with the Lord is better than being away from Him here. That's how we can always be of good courage. We walk by faith, not by sight. Now, you and I can't see around the corner. There's a lot of things we don't know that are up ahead. We know that there'll be suffering, that there'll be pain. The last moments of our life might be terrifying. We don't know. We don't know what they hold. But how can I see around the corner? Well, God's Word is the closest thing I can get to seeing around the corner of death. I can't see around the corner. None of us can really say what death is really like, can we? But God's Word can see around the corner because God can see around the corner. And what does He tell us to do? Trust Him, even in the hardest time, because it's just a matter of time until we are with Jesus. Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary says this about these verses. The people of God can be found in only one of two places, either in heaven or on earth. No Christian is in the grave. No Christian is in hell or any intermediate place between earth and heaven. Believers on earth are at home in the body, while believers who have died are absent from the body, but they are present with the Lord. Because Paul had this confidence, he was not afraid of whatever was coming his way. This is how we have that new perspective on death. We believe these certainties over just the things that we can see or even the things we can feel. I might be afraid, but remember the facts don't care about my feelings. And in that case, it's a good thing, isn't it? Because the facts are it's going to be okay for those of us who put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. No matter what comes our way, no matter what the world throws at us, no matter what the injustice is, no matter what the pain is, no matter what the sickness is, I'm walking by faith, not by sight. So we have certainty number one. The bodies we inhabit will die, but the good news is there's a better body to come. Certainty number two. God will keep His promise. His promise is to give us a new body, and He guarantees it by giving us the Spirit, which is proof that the rest is on the way. And certainty number three, being at home with the Lord is better than being away from Him for a believer. So what do those three certainties add up to? Look at verse 9. There's a conclusion we can make based upon these three facts that Paul has given us. So whether we are at home or away... We make it our aim 
A better way to translate that would be ambition. We make it our ambition to please Him. It is our ambition to please Him. So we have the certainties that help us keep what matters at the center of our lives. Those were the two words I was thinking, trying to look in the the thesaurus and try to figure out two words that started with a C. So we have the certainties that help us center, okay? The, The certainties that help us center or focus on what really matters as we live. So how do these certainties move me to make pleasing the Lord the center of my life and will? Maybe you could underline that last phrase there in verse 9. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Make that personal. I, Sawyer Edgington, make it my aim, my ambition is to please the Lord. Whether I'm in heaven or whether I'm on earth, I, Sawyer Edgington, make it my ambition to please the Lord. What's the bullseye in your life? What is it that you're aiming at? Is the bullseye pleasing the Lord? Is that the bullseye in heaven? Is that the bullseye on earth? What was your ambition last week? Think of the days you lived last week. Did you live last week saying, my ambition is to please God? Or were you trying to please yourself? Or were you trying to please someone else? Is it your ambition to please God? And maybe you say to me, well, I I love other things. My energy is spent on other things. I'm distracted. I think like the world. I act like the world. I'm entangled in civilian affairs. No. My aim is not to please Him, I'm afraid. Well, did God save you to please Him or to please yourself? I mean, we have these certainties, right? We're going to die. Things are, everything's going to be made new. The things that you're living for right now are going to be gone. So why are you living for them? Why would you live for the temporary things? I'm not saying don't go to work, don't do your job. I mean, we, have, we understand we have responsibilities. But I'm saying, what is your ambition? Because I can do my job. I can love my family. I can disciple my kids. I can do all that I'm called to do. And my ambition can still be to serve God and not myself. God hasn't given us a task that we're unable to perform, okay? He's he's given us his spirit that we might be obedient to him. Now, you're not going to be perfect, but he's not called you to something that is impossible to do. We can obey. You can obey. Will you obey? No. There's still so much sin nature left in you that there's going to be times where you disobey. But because you've got that spirit, because you're no longer a slave to sin, given any situation, you are able to actually obey God. Because your master is not sin anymore. Your master is the Lord Jesus Christ. So in every situation that you come to, you can say, do I please me? Or is it my aim and my ambition to please him? Here's what Richard Baxter said, famous Puritan. He said, but indeed nothing but the love of pleasing God can truly cure the love of flesh-pleasing. And that is the cure for every sin. (laughs) So you say, well, um, I don't know about that. I don't know if I'm able to. I mean, my pride may not let me admit that what I've been chasing after my whole life doesn't please God. 
What will my friends at work think if I start talking differently? What if I stop hanging around when they tell coarse jokes and use bad language? Will I still be happy if I can't go do this or can't go do that? As Baxter said, once you decide that your happiness is not the main concern, but pleasing God is the main concern, it will cure all of that. If you, don't, you don't have to decide what to give up. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm gonna, you just decide, I love God and I want to please Him. It'll take care of all the other stuff. It's like Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. And it's righteousness. Then everything will be added to you. Then all the, the loose ends tie themselves up. But there's another certainty that I've alluded to already in the introduction. There's another reason we should seek to please Him. There's another fact. Look at verse 22. I mean, excuse me, verse 10. I typed in verse 22. I have no, I have no reason. Why would I have done that? I don't understand my mind. It makes no sense. Look at verse 10. Certainty number four. For we, what's your Bible say there? Must. How many? All. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, who's Paul talking to here? He's talking about believers. Okay? Now, there is a judgment in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment. At the Great White, and there'll be a judgment of the nations as well. There's, many, there's several judgments that take place in the Bible. The Great White Throne Judgment is for people that don't believe in Jesus Christ. But this is a judgment that we call the Bema Seat Judgment, or a judgment for rewards. But Paul, talking to believers in Corinth, says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the, this Bema Seat Judgment. Now, this is not to determine whether you go to heaven or hell. What does it say? So that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. This is not a judgment to determine punishment for sin, but rewards for obedience. Paul's talked to the Corinthians about this before in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. But now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. We will all be held accountable. You will be held accountable for what you've done with the gospel. But for those of us that have put our faith and tr trust in Christ, we'll be accountable for what we've done with our time and our talent and our money and our influence and our opportunities and all of the advantages that God has given you over others through His grace. One way to translate this verse is, we will all be displayed. One day your character, what it really is, will be in the spotlight. Are you ready for that? I know I'm not. And in that moment, there will be no deception. There'll be no discussing. There'll be no justifying. There'll be no way to go back and fix what is fixed. So live in the light of that day. Consider every action. Consider every inaction. Every interaction 
in light of your heart being revealed one day. I recall not too long ago, I was sitting at the bedside of a Christian man, a good Christian man, as he was dying on hospice. And he was coming to grips and he was having this realization that he only had a few more days, maybe even a few more hours to live on this planet. And he started telling me things that he had wished he had done and things that he had wanted to do to serve Christ. And he would remember something else. Oh, I wanted to do this. Oh, why didn't I do that? And we went through that over and over again. And something would come to his mind, something he wanted to do for Jesus. And he would realize, I can't do it now. And he said, Chad, I thought I would have more time. Isn't that how we all feel? Well, thankfully, that wasn't the end of the conversation. We were able to look at God's grace and God's mercy and the goodness that we know the gospel teaches us, that the gospel is more powerful than those regrets. But I had never seen that before. I'd never seen someone at the very end express anything like that. I've never forgotten it. It stuck with me. I think, I'm going to be there. You're going to be there. And we're not going to say, oh, if I had only spent more time at work. You know, there'll be so many things that we focus on that that won't even matter at that moment. And there'll be all these other things that we'll realize those were the important things. And what, what that man was saying really was, if I had lived, and, and, and of course, remember, uh, you know, this is just the reality. And we, we trust in God's goodness, we trust in God's grace, we trust in God's mercy, but here's what that saint was reflecting to me. He was saying, if I'd have known this moment was coming, If I had lived in light of this moment, I would have done things differently. Nobody on their deathbed is going to say, I just wish I hadn't been so committed to Jesus. Those are words you will not hear from a dying saint. I ran across this quote by Spurgeon and I'll give it to you as a challenge, rewording it a little bit. Let's be a people who consider death to be delicious. Now, I'm saying that, and I know that sounds so crazy, but I think you'll, it'll help you remember it. Let's be a people who consider death to be delicious. Because it means for a believer that Jesus the one we aim to please has never been closer. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our ambition to please Him. Bow with me.